purposes of justice result in the destruction of lives, with the wrongly accused often tragically spending years behind bars. Compiled and created in the height of the COVID-19 lockdown by the Maynooth University Evidence Class of 2020. This is Injustices Served. This is the story of the Cardiff News Agent 3, or the case of O'Brien, Chief Constable of the South Wales Police from 2005. I am your host, Connor Carroll. Our group name is Notorious LAW, and this is our contribution to the Injustice series of podcasts. Firstly, Denise Bogdan will be taking us through the background of the individuals in case. We hope that you can learn something about the police standards in South Wales at the time, and sympathise with the plight of these men and their tragic story. The Cardiff Newsagent 3 miscarriage of justice surrounds the murder of Philip Saunders, a newsagent kiosk owner. Saunders, aged 52, was murdered at the back of his house, having been struck five times with a spade. Three men were wrongly convicted of the murder. Michael O'Brien, Ellis Sherwood and Darren Hall, who on the night of the murder had decided to steal a car. Michael O'Brien, born into a working class background, with an absent biological father, had a hatred of the education system due to being bullied in school for his size and poverty. He also had a distrust of the police due to being mistreated as a victim of sexual assault in his youth. O'Brien had a child at the young age of 18 and upon learning of his wife being pregnant with a second child, he turns to alcoholism. O'Brien's second child died of a cot's death during his imprisonment leading to his marriage dissolving and has contracted numerous drug addictions while in prison. It is O'Brien who has publicised and fought hardest for the acquittal and indeed for his case to be seen. Ellis Sherwood, born into a similar background, has shied away from the same notoriety that O'Brien now uses. In prison, Sherwood turned to heroin at the same time that O'Brien turned to law books and solicitors, leading to a stroke upon release. Darren Hall has perhaps the most tragic origin of the three. Hall was bullied in school, forcing him to leave at the age of 15. He was shortly kicked out of his home, forcing him to turn to prostitution for money. Hall was diagnosed later on with antisocial personality disorder, which when undiagnosed led to this miscarriage of justice. This is a case born of false confession, falsified evidence and abuse of criminal procedure by the South Wales Police. All three men were forced to serve a decade in prison. It is only on the basis of forensic psychiatrists, a report by a separate police division, and several legal battles by Michael O'Brien that this miscarriage of justice was ever rectified. O'Brien went on to write a book about this story entitled The Death of Justice, released in 2008. Thank you, Denise. Next, we will hear from Mark Byrne, discussing the timeline of the case and giving us the details of the story. The crime in question is the murder of Philip Saunders with which Michael O'Brien, Ellis Sherwood and Aaron Hall were convicted of in 1987. Saunders was killed with a spade in his own back garden with varying description given for who may have killed him. 
Saunders on several news agents kiosks in South Wales. On the night in question, O'Brien and Sherwood were out to steal a car, which they did before joyriding it, dumping it and going home. 42 suspects were questioned on the murder and during this questioning, the South Wales Police employed a number of unethical tactics to try and get O'Brien to confess, such as handcuffing him to a radiator and table and claiming they had enough information to prove he'd done it. They also attempted to get him to confess to Sherwood's involvement. Further custody violations showed me look at O'Brien and how he was kept from sleeping, having visits from a friend or relative uh, and also was denied access to a solicitor. These violations can be seen in Irish statutes will be discussed by my colleagues. The defendants were also brought to the scene of the crime where O'Brien got sick due to his lack of nutrition and sleep. In this state, the police questioned them regarding the vehicle at the site. Uh, they said they might have seen such a vehicle on the night in question. Uh, the police took this answer possibly to mean that they were there and tried to get them to sign notes confirming this. The police were then following O'Brien and arrested him once again. New information in the form of a confession by Darren Hall led to them appearing before the Magistrates Court on November 11, 1987. Darren Hall, who went to pair earlier in the night, had confessed to being the lookout. Uh, Christopher Chick and Helen Morris also came forward after Sherwood had apparently gone to spend the money he had stolen from Saunders and admit to the killing. Both these confessions were later retracted and Hall's confession was deemed unreliable due to the nature of his mental state and his condition paired with the intimidation of both the men and groups. A psychological report was also found to have existed saying that Hall's confession was given as fantasising and a number of other reports were found that he had such a condition that his vulnerability part of the treatment of him could lead to his confession being deemed vulnerable. O'Brien and Sherwood were put into adjoining cells. While they were in these cells, D.I. Stuart Lewis had apparently overheard a conversation between the pair making incriminating remarks on two occasions. According to D.I. Stuart Lewis, the men said, I can't hold out for much longer, I'm scared I'll have to tell them what happened, and I can't hold out for much longer, I may have to tell them the truth. These incriminating statements were found to be unreliable as no original document was found with this verbatim remark, and forensic linguists who had analysed the situation disproved that this could have occurred. D.I. Stuart Lewis is an important figure as not only he carried out pace violations against O'Brien and Sherwood, but fed into the mental disorder of Darren Hall by feeding his ego. In the interviews, Hall gave multiple different accounts with records of the detentions being inconsistent with the actual interviews. He did, however, claim his innocence and admit to lying in the interviews once the solicitor was present. This could be attributed to his conditions and the conditions he was placed in. Um, Hall also admits to apologising to the son of Saunders for the murder, which would be fine if not for him not having a son. The trial began on June 27, 1988 in Cardiff Crown Court. Even though Hall had confessed his innocence when he was in detention, he went on to court to admit to manslaughter, but this was refused by the prosecution. The prosecution alleged that all three men knew of Saunders' movements, that he was in possession of a large amount of money, and that they contemplated serious violence. Hall had given evidence that he was a lookout, and multiple other witnesses of previous criminal records came forward to testify, whom later retracted their statements, or when admitted, uh, were asked about the pressures they received, and the court found that they could not lend weight to these witnesses. When speaking on the defence available to the men, said that they were a mile and a half from the scene, 10 minutes from the time of it occurring without a vehicle. This provided them with an alibi, but there was no forensic evidence linking any three of the men to the scene. O'Brien's clean criminal record also fell in their favour. Uh, the multiplicity of confession and a lack of knowledge around the scenario from Hall should have also been a factor for the court. Unfortunately for the defence, they were unaware of the many breaches by the police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984, and they could not refute the confession by Hall. The men were then convicted of murder and sentenced with life with six concurrent years for Hall and eight concurrent years for the two other men. 
Clear missteps from the scene how there was no analysis of Hall's mental condition in the original trial and the discrepancies in how Christopher Chick attests to seeing a weapon that at the time was in a forensic lab. Whilst in prison, O'Brien got an appeal set for March 17, 1990, but he was unable to sit at the trial in which he lost due to the barrister's inability to overcome the confession from Hall. In attempting to get further appeals, O'Brien found a section of the Criminal Evidence Act of 1984 which stated that he could look at previous cases in which a police officer was being scrutinised. Key points should have been made and reinforced the original trial. Uh, some of these are that there was no forensic evidence, no reliable eyewitness evidence. An eyewitness uh, was there saying there was only one man spotted the scene. Uh, O'Brien and Sherwood were unlikely to brag to their friends about the murder. Key alibi witnesses were not called, such as Mandy Persico, who said they were acting normally and had no blood in their clothes. Uh, there was also no evidence that Mandy had handled any money after the crime or had any involvement. O'Brien involved the CCRC and Gareth Pierce away at the Birmingham Six. The CCRC involved the Thames Valley Police who put together the Thames Valley Police report. The Thames Valley Police report went on to reiterate what O'Brien had been saying for years and made several references to the contravening of the Pace Act by the police involved. It lists several discrepancies of the detention record of the three men and what should have constituted interviews. The case of R.V. Edwards was also brought up at the CCRC as displayed disturbing parallels to the applicant's case, particularly in relation to G.I. Lewis's evidence. On December 21st, 1998, upon help from the referral from the CCRC and the James Valley Police Report, the three were granted bail. On the first day of the appeal, Hall's confession was said to have been unreliable due to multiple accounts of professionals on his mental state and condition. On the second day of the appeal, they spoke on Hall's constantly changing story and the discrepancies in the police records. On the third day, Hall's original solicitor and Hall admitted to previously committing a crime he could not possibly commit. On both the third day and the fourth day, psychologists and psychiatrists spoke on both sides about Hall's admiration of criminals and possible antisocial personality disorder. On the fifth day, Hall's solicitor asked that they rule on the grounds listed that his confession is inadmissible. Christopher Chick and Helen Moore spoke on the pressures they received to lie, and the barrister for Sherwood spoke now on true the accounts they gave were. The apparent admission heard by D.I. Lewis was also analysed and references were made to the Welsh bomb trial and other instances of D.I. Lewis' involvement in ill-treatment or miscarriages of justice. The opposition attempted to justify the behaviour of the police by saying it was the standards at the time. On the ninth day of appeal, the convictions were found unsafe, and on January 25, 2003, appeal judges officially granted the appeal and laid out a 28-page document and their full findings reinforcing the investigation by Thames Valley Police and their importance, the granting the appeal reinforced all the points of appeal on which O'Brien was seeking. Thanks Mark. Now that we understand the facts of the matter, and the terrible injustice that these men went through, we turn to Philip Chalmers to discuss the British law that enabled O'Brien to win the appeal, and to rectify this miscarriage of justice. So, with reference to British law, it is evident that there have been multiple breaches within the case of the Cardiff News Agent Tree. It is clear that there has been a breach under the Police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984. This is also known as the Pace Act. The first breach of this act was the oppressive techniques that have been used by the South Welsh Police during their time of investigation. Under section 76 of the Pace Act, where it states, if in any proceedings where the prosecution proposes to give in evidence a confession made by an accused person, it is represented to the court that the confession was or may have been obtained by the oppression of the person who made it. Using oppressive techniques used by the police makes the confession inadmissible. The Act further states that the court cannot allow the confession to be given as evidence except insofar as the prosecution can prove beyond reasonable doubt that the confession was not obtained in that manner. Also, it should be noted that the Act states that oppression includes torture, the 
threat or use of violence or any inhumane or degrading treatment. It is clear that Darren Hall had suffered from degrading treatment. During his time of investigation, he had been handcuffed to radiators and had also been deprived of sleep. Also, with regard to Mr. Hall, psychologists should have been referred as he had schizophrenia. They would have been clearly able to state that he did have schizophrenia. This means that under the Pace Act, the judge should make clear that the court is satisfied and that the accused is mentally ill. Also, that the confession was not made in the presence of an independent person. An independent person is not a person who is employed by the police. So for instance, this would be a solicitor. This is relevant under section 77 of the Pace Act. When Hall had access to his solicitor, he had made a different confession. Another aspect relevant is the interview of Mr. O'Brien. Mr. O'Brien had requested the access to a solicitor in the CID area, but had been denied and this had been unrecorded. Not having access to a solicitor is a breach in the British law. Also, the act that is relevant is the Prisoners' Council Act. With reference to Mr. Hall, when he had been questioned, the police had made no attempt to inform him of his rights or his right to access a solicitor. There had also been a breach in the Pace Act in terms of the interviews. There had been no recordings of the interviews carried out when the three men had been in question. Within British law, it is a code of practice to record proceedings of the interview of proof of possible criminal convictions. Even though there was no digital recordings at this time, the police should have made an attempt to make some type of notation. This clearly did not occur when the police had interviewed the men while they were leaving the car from the crime scene. Also, there have been multiple interviews within the police station and the police did not make any recordings. Also, in terms of the Criminal Evidence Act 1984, the court also stated that it would be impossible to find the confessions were not found in the correct manner along the interviews were off the record. Meaning, the confessions that had been discovered by the South Welsh Police were against the law. So, overall, based on the proceedings of the South Welsh Police and with reference to British law, it is evident that there have been multiple breaches within this trial. It is clear that there have been multiple breaches within the Pace Act. The South Welsh Police had used oppressive techniques to get confessions out of Darren Hall, which is a breach in the British law. Also, with reference to Mr. O'Brien, when he had asked for the access to a solicitor, they had denied him of this. This is also a breach within the British law under the Prisoners' Councils Act 1836. Also, with the police making no recordings of the interviews, this is a breach inter under Criminal Evidence Act 1984. Thank you very much, Philip. We now have a better understanding of the law that enabled O'Brien, Sherwood and Hall to be set free. But how would we react if this was to happen on our own shores? How would the Irish courts react in this matter? We listen now to Maeve Lyons to understand. This trial took place in Wales, so we compared the facts and treatment of the defendants to Irish law to see if there would have been a different outcome. The treatment of the three men during questioning clearly is in breach of the Criminal Justice Act of 1984. The men were detained for an unspecified time period. Under Irish law, a person may only be detained and questioned for a maximum of six hours before the interview must end. 
Due to the excessive length of the interviews, any confession after the six hours would fall under the judgment laid out in DPP v. Shaw, 1982. In that, the confession would be deemed unconstitutional as it was deliberately removing the right to liberty under Article 40.4.1 of the Constitution. They were also kept in extremely uncomfortable conditions, handcuffed to both a hot radiator and a table. During rest periods, police used sleep deprivation as a weapon. Under the Criminal Justice Act of 1984, treatment of persons in custody in Garda Shia stations, Regulations 1987, a person must be treated with respect with allowances made for proper rest periods. Furthermore, under Section 12.2, it is stated that the interview shall be conducted in a fair and humane manner. The manner in which these interviews were conducted was not fair or humane. They should have only been handcuffed to the interview table, given allowances for reasonable rests and released from question within the set time limit under law. Further violations can be seen in this Act in Section 19.2 for sleep, H.1.B for solicitors and Section 11.4 for family and friend visits. Hall's confession, which was relied upon by the prosecution, was unreliable in the extreme. Hall had changed his story on numerous occasions, which may have been exacerbated in the attempt to escape the strenuous conditions. Hall did not implicate O'Brien or Sherwood until the seventh interview after he was shown a photo of O'Brien. Considering the numerous changes to Hall's story, this may have been seen as an attempt to force a confession. Hall had also mentioned a history of schizophrenia in his fifth interview. Police actions may be seen as an attempt to further confuse Hall. In the Kerry Baby case of 1984, Joanna Hayes claimed to have been forced by Gardaí to confess to killing a baby found on a beach. They had questioned her for hours and mentally degraded her for being with child out of wedlock. The mental trauma, as well as the suspected physical abuse, resulted in a false confession that she had given birth to and killed the child. Due to the lack of forensic evidence to support this, the confession was retracted and a full acquittal given. It could be said that the case of the Cardiff News Agent Tree, under Irish law, would follow this as precedent due to the similar lack of forensic evidence and retracted confession. Ireland's recent case law indicates that the process of excluding evidence relies on a strict balance of rights and the probative value of the evidence. In DPP v JC 2015, Section 29.1 of the Offences Against the State Act 1939, as amended, allowed for the issuance of a warrant allowing Gardaí to search for premises. During this search, the defendant made several incriminating comments. Section 29 was found to be unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court went on to state that, From now on, evidence obtained unconstitutionally will be admissible if the prosecution can show that the breach was due to inadvertence of the breach. This raised the question of whether the defendant's statement could be used as evidence by the prosecution. The court found that the statements to be inadmissible due to them being given under an unconstitutional warrant. When this logic is applied in the case of the Cardiff newsagent tree, we see that the deliberate violation of rights by the South Wales Police would indicate that the confession would be held inadmissible. As such, the men would be acquitted 
and no prison time would have been served. Thank you, Maeve, for helping us to understand the Irish law that may be applied in this scenario. We would like to believe that the Irish court system would fare better in this case. However, this was a miscarriage of justice. As Philip stated earlier, there are laws in place to keep the South Wales police force in check that were just simply disregarded. Finally, we will hear from Alice O'Toole, who will conclude the discussion with an aftermath of the case. After 11 years in prison, there was an immediate media frenzy. O'Brien spoke about the guilt he had felt for missing 11 years of his family's lives. He suffered from PTSD as a result. He continued to study in law in order to distract himself and to help others. O'Brien fought for a full public inquiry into the South Wales Police and several investigations dating back to 1982, costing over £15 million. A subsequent investigation brought to light the real killer of Lynette White, garnering public support for O'Brien in this inquiry and from the First Minister of Wales, as the South Wales Police were forced to admit their failures. O'Brien began to work with Paddy Joe Hill of the Birmingham Six on the Miscarriage of Justice organisation, before being forced to leave due to failing health. Of the three men, O'Brien maintains a 10,000 reward for information in relation to the killing of Philip Saunders. He unfortunately has had a tragic life even after prison, as a second marriage fell apart due to the death of another child, Dylan. Ellis Sherwood, upon release, attempted to kick the heroin addiction that he had developed in prison. Ultimately, he succeeded, but unfortunately suffered a stroke, leaving his arm paralysed. Due to the stigma he gained while in prison and the epilepsy his stroke left him with, he does not see his children, but lives with his wife, Yvonne. Of Darren Hall, not much is known after his release. He is not mentioned in the press and has not interviewed since his release. Thank you very much for listening. I have been your host, Connor Carroll, and we've received input from Denise Bogdan, Mark Byrne, Philip Chalmers, Maeve Lyons and Alice O'Toole. We hope that the listener now has a better understanding of these men and their tragic story, and the legal consequences that resulted from it. We are Notorious LIW, and this is a podcast on the Cardiff News Agent 3, as part of the Injustice series of podcasts. Thank you.